On the evening of October 30th, 1938, panic gripped thousands across the United States as news reports started circulating about Martians invading the Earth. Reports included of martial law, devastation, casualties, and the invasion of New York City. Listeners who resisted the urge of gathering their children and fleeing with food and rifles were eventually greeted with the radio announcer informing that they were listening to a CBS dramatization of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. The audience had heard science fiction being performed, not news being reported. Listeners misunderstood the genre and almost suffered because of it. And this often happens with the book of Revelation because when we don't understand the genre, the history, the purpose, and the context, it may lead to misunderstanding and unfortunately may cause us to live in extremes. The aim of John's strange vision is aimed for transformation more than information. Revelation is revealing about Jesus from Jesus in an apocalyptic style. The strangest of Revelation is, about, is less about hiding things from us and more about revealing to us things that we've stopped seeing in our lives. Now, today we're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5, and these are pivotal chapters in the book because they provide important perspective to everything that is going on in life and around the world in a cosmic perspective. Since things are not as they seem, we need to put on a set of glasses that frame our perception of reality. We have to ask ourselves these questions. Is my perception of reality accurate? Are the glasses that I'm wearing distorting my view or do I actually need a new pair of glasses? Now there are two practical pastoral purposes for having a correct and a clear and a new perspective. The first is to set the present moment in the light of the unseen realities of the future. Now there is a future reality, we read that in Revelation 21 and 22 about Jesus coming back and bringing with him a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation where there will be no more death and pain and sorrow and crying, that God is going to create this newness and this new creation where the old things pass away and God will make everything new. God himself will be with his people and be their God. The second purpose is to set the present moment in the light of the unseen realities of the present. There is more going on around us than what we can perceive with our minds, imagine with our imaginations, and feel in our hearts. I'd like to demonstrate that quickly for us this, uh, today. As you can see here, there is a glass and there is an arrow. And as you're looking through the glass, the arrow is pointing this way. And this is how we may perceive uh, our reality to be. But in God's Word, we see that there's more things happening in our world and in our cosmos than what we can naturally and audibly understand. And so sometimes we need to frame our perception, put on new glasses, have a different understanding, and that's what Revelation does for us. And so here is a picture of water. And as you look at the arrow pointing this way, I'm going to pour this water into this jar and to see what happens to this arrow and the direction of our perception. And so as I pour the water in, and this could speak to us of having a correct perception and understanding, a framework of our reality, you probably would notice that the direction of this arrow has changed. The perception of reality, perception of what's going on in our lives have changed. Things that were heading this way are now actually, in essence, heading a different way, where our perception needs to be refocused on what's actually happening in God's world. 
And so apocalyptic literature opens us up to the unseen world. What is disclosed to John is the worship in chapter 4 and 5 of the living God taking place continually 24-7. This means that worship does not just happen on Sundays and it doesn't just happen when we come and it doesn't end when we leave. Whenever we worship God, we are entering into a service that is in progress, never ending, and it's just always going on. Now just take a moment to think about that amazing fact that we enter an ongoing worship service. John was on the prison island of Patmos, and so we've heard the last few weeks on why was he there? Because he refused to worship the Roman emperor. It was in his awful, miserable circumstance of persecution. He chose to worship God, and in so doing, he discovered that he wasn't alone. He was, though he was on this prison island, he entered into a worship service that was going on for a very long time. And in chapter 4 and 5, we have this apocalyptic moment describing worship taking place, even without us. So the question for all of us here today is, will we enter in to the worship of God? Chapters 4 and 5 is the opening scene of the second act of the drama found in Revelation. The first act is Revelation 1 to 3, where the glorified Christ is walking in the midst of the candlestick, which represents the seven churches, where he engages and speaks to them, message of comfort, hope, and warning. We've heard from pastors John and Daryl Johnson how they have beautifully articulated the first three chapters of Revelation. This act, the second and the second act, this act closes and the second act begins with Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, with the verb open. And John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This new act in chapter 4 verse 1 begins with a new scene, new actors, and a new purpose. And this act continues all the way to Revelation 11 verse 18. Because in Revelation 11:19, the third act begins with, again, the word and the verb open. And it says there, The temple of God that is in heaven was open. The fourth and fifth act begin with a similar word, open, in Revelation 15.5 and 19.11. In this second act, we see the two dominant images that are found in the entire book of Revelation, which is a throne and the Lamb. We'll see in the next act the third dominant image, which is the dragon. What is amazing is that the throne and the Lamb will remain even until the final act, even after the dragon comes on scene and is gone. John then says, I looked. Look is the second most frequent command in Revelation. The first is, do not be afraid. Our fears can dissipate when we turn and look at the things of God. As the famous chorus says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In verse 1, it says, a door in heaven is open." The door is open because of what God has done for us through Jesus. And if you remember when Jesus died in Matthew 27, 51, it says that the veil of the temple was torn, signaling that God has opened a way for all of us. We are all invited to enter and engage in with a relationship with Jesus. This door in heaven uh, is speaking about this place, this experience of heaven. In the Bible, heaven is not some faraway place. Our future is not a disembodied experience where our soul leaves our body for good. But the reality of our future is an embodied experience with God in His new creation. 
John writes about heaven, he's referring to another dimension that's very close at hand. It's a dimension all around us, not naturally visible, not audible, not touchable, but very close. Heaven is the God reality that is parallel to our present and that supports the reality of earth. New Testament scholar John Card describes, uh, George Card describes the reality of heaven this way. He says, heaven is a part of the universe, but a part which is entered by the opening of the spiritual eye rather than by any external form of transit. Essentially, it's not that we, we go to heaven, we rather engage and enter in when we see it. John was not physically transported to experience heaven. And so we understand that things are happening in the unseen reality and realm, and very often we forget to notice those things. You remember there's a story in, in the book of 2 Kings verse 6 where Israel was facing this battle against Aram. And one morning, the servant of Elijah went out to the city and he saw upon the hills and he saw an army of horses and chariots, and that servant became fearful, but Elisha wasn't. And Elisha then prayed to God and says, um, and he said to the servant, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, God, Lord, open the eyes of him that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now that story should bring us a lot of comfort that the God of angel armies is going before us and surrounds us and there is a lot more happening in our world than what we can naturally see and hear. John then hears a voice saying, come up here. It's an invitation to enter, experience, and engage. Immediately, John was in the spirit and he saw a throne. We first see the throne, in fact, in the first act when Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea and he promises to those who overcome in verse chapter 3 verse 21, I will grant you to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and am sat down with my father on his throne. We also see the throne at the very end of the book where there's a powerful and hopeful promise uttered in Revelation 21 verse 5 it says, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Now, John was not the first to see a throne. Hundreds of years before, prophets Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, and a prophet named Micaiah all experienced visions of God's throne. But what John now sees is different from what the prophets had seen in heaven. And we see that when John experiences it, he sees the Lamb. He sees the throne where the lamb is there and where God is there. John was not the first to see the throne. Hundreds of years before, prophets Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and even a prophet named Micaiah all experienced visions of God's throne. Since the time of the prophets first had an apocalyptic moment of the throne, the world had, has witnessed thousands of enthronings and dethronings. Hundreds of powerful and aggressive and seemingly invincible empires have come and gone, and some of whom have been the Sumerians and Egypt and Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and even the Ottoman Empire. We've seen the rise and fall of leaders such as Hitler and Stalin and Lenin and Mao Zedong, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, and we've seen gone are Saddam Hussein and uh, Osama bin Laden. And God says to us today, do not be afraid. Look, a throne and one sitting on it is unmovable, unshakable, and will always remain. And John recognizes there is someone on the throne who rules and reigns, and it's not him. It's not you, and it's not me. 
We do not sit on the throne and nor we are the center of the universe, although at times we think we are or we feel like we are. Think about what's angering or frustrating you at this moment. If we're honest with ourselves, how much of that anger is a result of us facing the fact that things don't go the way we want it to go? Frequently, we want Jesus to be Mr. Fix-It, to help work all things perfectly for our needs. We demand that God fix our financial struggle, our, the crisis of our day, or to satisfy our inner cravings and do it immediately. Essentially, we want God to confirm that we are the center of the universe, and we often feel frustrated when, he, when we don't experience that. We may wonder, if we've invited Jesus into our lives, then why doesn't he fix everything? But maybe Revelation is showing us something different. Maybe Jesus is inviting us into his life, into his heart, to take up the cross, to love others, to forgive others, to serve others, even when it's painful and hard. God is painfully pulling us into his world and he's opened the door of heaven, his reality, to first show us that he is on the throne and that we are not, and that we are not the center of the universe. Jesus is inviting us into his life, which is harder than often us inviting Jesus into ours. It requires us to throw down our crowns, our ambitions, and our accomplishments, our pride at the feet of Jesus. It requires us surrendering our desires for things to happen the way we want it to happen. There's a story of a man in Dundee, Scotland, and he was confined to bed for 40 years after having broken his neck at the age of 15. His spirit remained unbroken, he remained cheerful and courageous, and he inspired many people, and people would often come and visit him and talk to him. And one day a visitor came to him and asked him, doesn't Satan ever tempt you to doubt God? And the man replied, oh yes, he does tempt me. And I lie here and I see my classmates and friends driving their cars, enjoying life and having a good time. And Satan often whispers and says, if God is so good, why does he keep you here all these years? Why did he permit that your neck to be broken? And so the, the, the visitor asks, and what do you do when Satan whispers those things? And the, the man replies and says, ah, I take him to Calvary and I show him Christ and I point to him the wounds, the deep wounds and said, he does love me. And Satan has no answer and he flees every time. And so then we see John experiencing and seeing the seven lamps of fire burning from the throne, which he learns are the seven spirits of God in chapter 4, verse 5. The seven is the number of completeness. The seven spirits of God is a way of saying that the Holy Spirit in his completeness, the fire of God in his completeness, the purity of God in his completeness, and the creativity of God in his completeness. John sees a rainbow around the throne which depicts God's merciful justice. It is a sign that the one who sits on the throne deals with human sin as it deserves. If you remember the story of the flood and the rainbow and judgment, but then also God deals with human humanity and their sin as if they don't deserve with God's mercy, with mercy and justice. In verse 6, John sees the throne as a sea of glass before it like crystal. In verse 6, the sea in Revelation is seen as a power of chaos, not actually a body of water. We read in Revelation 21 verse 1, it says that in God's new creation, there is no sea. Now, this is not actually about water, but chaos. 
that threatened to suck the life out of the cosmos. Note the order in Revelation 19, uh, chapters 19 to 21, in which God judges the forces that was against humanity. First, the beast in chapter 19, verse 20. Then the devil in chapter 20, verse 10. Then death in 2014. Then Hades, the place of death, again in chapters 20, verse 14. And then the sea, the power of chaos and the source of destructive evil. However, before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal, which depicts calmness and order. When we approach the throne of grace in our times of struggle, we can appreciate and receive calmness in the midst of chaos. We're able to find peace even when our lives may seem like it's in pieces because God is a God of peace. Then in verse 4, John sees 24 elders sitting on their thrones clothed in white garments and crowns on their head. They were assembled in a semicircle similar to the elders in a Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, does this mean that these 24 thrones were in competition or rivaling the great throne? No. Actually, it reveals God's humility, inviting others to partner with him in governing the world. The 24 is 12 plus 12. The 12 represents the people of God that came before Jesus, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the other 12 represents the, 12, the people of God that came after Jesus as seen through the 12 disciples. John also sees the four living creatures, a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle that represent the whole creation. A major theme in the Bible is the relationship between the creator and creation, where creation knows its creator and where creation gives to its creator praise and honor and glory and worthy of worship. This is why Jesus said on Palm Sunday, when the crowds were shouting Hosanna and a few religious leaders were telling them to be quiet, Jesus said in Luke 19, 40, if these become silent, then the stones will cry out. Creation will praise and glorify. Creation worships day and night, night and day. They worship saying in verse 8, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So just remember when we come on Sundays to worship or when we enter in worship any time during the day, we are entering a worship service already in progress where the redeemed people join creation in worship saying as in verse 11 of chapter 4, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they exist and were created. This type of worship actually would be in stark challenge to the worship of the Roman Empire, who worshiped the emperor as a god. Scholars have noted the imperial hymns sung at political events and phrases that were shouted at the emperor. And these would include, Holy One, glory, salvation belongs to you, authority, worship, worthy to receive power, righteous are your judgments, our Lord and God. Now you could see why the Roman Emperor was hostile against Christians and Jesus. Jesus as king was a direct threat to the Roman kingdom. Saying Jesus was Lord was as much a political statement than just a religious sentiment. The words and images in Revelation served as prophetic counter images which were to purge the imaginations of the people and provide them with an alternative vision of how the world is and how it would be in the future. So in Revelation 4, God wants us to know that we are not on the throne. In Revelation 5, as we look, he wants us to recognize who is on the throne. Now we come to the most dramatic moment 
of the entire drama of the apocalypse of Jesus. Now, this is not an exaggeration or an overstatement. John sees a scroll in the right hand of God who sits on the throne. And there is writing on the inside and outside of the scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? At first glance, the scroll resembles an ancient will. Under the Roman legal system, you would need six witnesses to sign and seal your will before you died. You would write it, sign it with six other people, then roll it up, seal it shut with a glob of hot wax. All six witnesses would make their unique impressions and would use a, a, a ring or some stamp to sign it. And upon once you've added your own uh, signature or glob of wax, you would then have your legal Roman will complete, sealed with seven seals. So this scroll is the scroll of history containing its plan and purpose and course and future. It's how God is going to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The scroll contains God's plan for rectifying what is wrong and evil and establishing his gracious and loving rule in the world. And John sees an angel asking with a loud voice in Revelation 5 to who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who has the power to guide and understand and lead God's plan? John learns no one, no one in heaven, no one on earth and no one under the earth. And then John begins to weep and cry when there is no one to open the scroll. John is behind the curtain of the present reality and he's in deep despair because there was no one. There was no one because things weren't as they were should be. God's kingdom had not come on earth as it is in heaven. John's loved ones are suffering. His churches are being persecuted. Violence and evil and death and destruction are terrorizing the world. And Job, John is sobbing in heaven over the scroll. The scroll is God's global plan in, on a global level and on a personal level. First, on a global level, it's how God is going to right the wrongs of injustice, like what happened in Aleppo and Auschwitz, or with famine and human trafficking, racism, and the untold human suffering throughout the centuries. And also on a personal level, it's how God is going to right the wrong of the intimate wounds in all of our lives. Then the moment arrives when one of the 24 elders tells John, stop weeping and look. There is a common command again there to look. See, and he's pointing and he's saying, see the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse has overcome and is worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals. The lion of Judah and the root of Jesse are messianic titles. The lion has come and the lion has overcome. The lion is victorious. The lion can open the scroll. There is rejoicing. There's hope and anticipation. And then comes the moment when John looks over and sees this mighty, strong and magnificent and powerful lion, right? No. John sees a lamb as if slain with seven eyes and seven horns. And this is Jesus. We hear of a lion in chapter 5, verse 5, but we see a lamb in 5 verse 6. A lamb is seen by John and in Greek, the New Testament word, uh, in Greek there's a, a two words for lamb that's translated. One is amnos, which means adult sheep. Remember when John the Baptist pointed to and described Jesus and said, look, the lamb of God that takes the, away the sin of the world. But the second word is ar arnion, which means young sheep or little sheep or little lamb. Instead of seeing the lion, John sees this weak little lamb slain on the cross. But this slain lamb turns out to be one with immense power and wisdom. 
The lion doesn't overcome as a lion, but becoming a lamb, giving himself for the life of the world. The ultimate power of the universe is self-giving love. Love that is willing to bleed can open the scroll. Humble, suffering, and triumphant love sits on the throne and opens the scroll, showing us both who God is and how God saves. God is a giver, generously granting existence to everything. God is a lover to the point of death, suffering, and being slaughtered. And God is a servant to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why does the lion become a lamb? Why did the lion suffer and why was he slain? The lamb goes to the cross because of us and for us. And he goes to the cross instead of us so that you and I can experience eternal life. We cannot make an intellectual sense to all the suffering in the world. We cannot even make a rational understanding of the suffering that you and I experience in our own lives, much less the collective horrors and tragedy and pain that is happening 24-7 around the world. There is so much pain, disaster, devastation, and sufferings that our mind would be doomed to despair just thinking about it. The gospel doesn't offer us an intellectual answer, but a relational one. Revelation shows a God that um, makes everything new by healing from the inside out. God's victory does not avoid slaughter, but bears with it, passes through it, and transfigures it. Now, how many of our doubts and disappointments stem from looking for a different kind of God and a different kind of victory? Sometimes we wonder, why doesn't God just instantly change the world by using his seven horns, which is perfect strength, and seven eyes, perfect knowledge and wisdom, to overcome my circumstances, to defeat my enemies, to force the world to comply to his purpose. We wish God would fix the world from the outside and do it now, please. But that's not how God works. We want a victorious life without the pain and the process. And there are times in our lives that we have to endure the process of pain and rejection and humiliation and suffering. And God may actually work in and through our pain for his glory. When our son Micah was about 14 months old, we noticed a scratch in his right eye. After noticing he was tearing a lot, we ended up taking him to the doctor and he had to be forcibly held down while the doctor put fluorescein in his eye so that he could examine him. And he noticed a foreign body lodged in his cornea and said immediately taken to sick kids. And we were concerned for his sight and possibly even could lose it. And so we drove that evening and finally uh, was, he was seen around 10 p.m. that evening. And again, he was forcibly put down so they could put fluorescein and he could be examined by that doctor at the hospital. Now, after a couple of days of going back and forth, they decided to put him to sleep to remove this foreign body, which we eventually found out possibly was a paint chip from his crib. To prepare for that procedure, they had to put four sets of drops in his eyes and then give him medication to put him to sleep. For each set, he had to be held down and forcibly uh, you know, put these drops and he was crying profusely. Now I was imagining what he was thinking, wondering, where is my daddy? Why was my daddy not stopping the pain and the trauma and these strangers from invading and trying to put things in his eyes? And he was probably just wondering, what is happening? Why is this happening? Most importantly, where are my parents? What he would realize is that his own daddy was the one who was involved in holding him down. And at times we may not know what is happening and why is it happening and where is God. And it may seem like God is absent or silent and it's awful and painful and tearful and difficult. 
And what may seem worse is when we carefully analyze the situation, we may realize it's actually God's hand involved in our painful situation for our further good. Micah didn't realize that his daddy was holding him down so that he could get drops in his eyes that would allow the doctor to remove that foreign body so that he could preserve his sight, the damage from the eyes, and that he could be healed. You know, Jesus experienced a similar experience when he was on the cross and where he cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At times we may feel forsaken, but we must surrender and trust that God is with us and that he's looking out for the greater good of our lives. There was a moment of pain to remove a long-term period of damage to his eye. And so when Micah woke up from his sedation, what was his first action? Was it anger? Was it a refusal to come to us as his parents? No. Micah's first initial reaction when he woke up was to embrace us, to embrace and give a hug. And we need to also embrace God who is waiting to embrace us. We should be willing to surrender to God and be willing to embrace him and to be embraced and say, God, in this moment of pain, I love you. I trust you. And no matter what we go through in life, we should be willing to embrace him, to love him and trust him. Very often we want the lion's success with none of the lamb's suffering. The lion's power arrives in the lamb's patience. The lion's success arrives in the lamb's surrender. The lion's supremacy arrives in the lamb's service. They often don't feel like victory, but Jesus assures us today that love willing to bleed is how God saves the world. With our revelation glasses on, we realize that we work from victory, not towards it. The Lamb, Jesus, is already on the throne. We do not enter the battle with evil to win it because Jesus has already won the battle. The major part of the war has already been fought and it's a matter of time until the war ends. The final outcome cannot be altered and nothing can dethrone the Lamb on the throne. What confidence, what hope does it fill our hearts today that we already know who wins? It's Jesus. Jesus wins. And so the final outcome is not for grabs. Nothing can dethrone the enthroned Lamb of God. And I hope that gives us confidence, even in the midst of whatever we're going through today, that ultimately Jesus wins. And the God who loves us is working towards that ultimate good for all our lives. And so I'd like to close and summarize with these five key takeaways. First, make sure that we've put on the right pair of glasses to have the correct perspective of reality so that we can engage heaven and engage God's purposes and plans, that we are seeing how God sees things. The second is our willingness to join and engage this ongoing worship service. There is a worship service going on 24-7 and we have access to it anytime as we engage in worship, particularly when we gather on Sundays, but also during the week in our private moments, in our public moments, to engage with the worship that's going on. The third is, let God be God and realize that you and I are not in the throne. And even though we want to be the center of the universe and we want everything to work out the way we want it to work out, we have to trust and realize God is on the throne. He rules and reigns through his loving and gracious kindness. The fourth is that we are called as the lamb who reigned through his self-giving love we are called to follow in this self-giving love. 
loving others, forgiving others, serving others through, selfish, through selfless acts of love. Even when it's hard, when it's hard to forgive that person who spoke against us, when it's hard to forgive that person who betrayed us, God has called us with self-giving love to live as how Jesus lived. And finally, trust in God's final victory. Jesus wins. Amen? Jesus wins. And that trust and that confidence would give us uh, hope and give us fervency and desire to continue to love Him, serve Him, to know that ultimately the Lamb of God is on the throne. And if God be for us, who can be against us? So as we close, I'd like to invite you to join with me in this prayer as you'll see on the screen. Would you feel comfortable, if you feel comfortable to recite this prayer together, let this prayer be our hope and our desire as we love Jesus and serve him. And we look forward to that day when he will return and understand that God loves us, is for us, and he will never leave us and never forsake us. So would you join with me in praying this prayer? God, we, we lift our eyes to see your glory. We open our hearts to receive your love. We engage our minds to understand your truths. We offer our songs to praise your name. Lord, as we give our lives, please take everything that we are so that we may reveal your love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.